This is a city of shifting light, of changing skies, of sudden vistas. A city so beautiful, it breaks the heart again and again. Thus spoke, does anyone know? I thought that was really famous. It's like written on a wall. <laughs> oh, it's Alexander McCall Smith, Edinburgh's novelist. Really beautiful description of Edinburgh. Um, by which I just want to say, don't you just love Edinburgh? Don't you just love it? I love Edinburgh. I um, was saying earlier, um, part of my job, part of the privilege of my role here is I often get to meet people new around the city. And when they ask me, oh, you've been here 12 years, Hannah, have you ever thought about moving anywhere else? And I say, no, Edinburgh kind of ruins you for any other city, right? It's like, it's got everything you could possibly want from a city. Just everything. Why would you go anywhere else? I... I really love Edinburgh. I've been here 12 years now. I came here as a student, as a little 19-year-old. Some of you will actually remember that. Um, let's not pause there. Um, and uh, like many of you, I think I could list a litany of locations for the different seasons of my life in this city, and I'm sure you could too. I remember my first journey from Cumbria up to Edinburgh, and uh, driving in through Dolkeith to the lovely location of Pollock Halls. And uh, unpacking there, I remember student years spent in Newington, walking up that street through all the charity shops. I remember many tearful goodbyes at Waverley Station as my now husband, but then boyfriend and I said hello and goodbye, what felt like a thousand times over. <laughs> I remember moving to Morningside when we got married and being part of Morningside Baptist Church. I remember moving here, being part of the Toll Cross journey. I remember having our children at the Simpsons. I remember Saturday mornings spent in Portobello and Dolkeith Country Park. I'm sure like many of you, a list of locations that illustrate my love for this city. You'll have your own if you stopped and thought for a minute. And if you don't have one yet, don't worry, you will, because there's lots to love about Edinburgh. <laughs> and here at Central, we have a vision, don't we, to love Edinburgh. That's what we think God's called us to be about. That's what he has for us. And that is a big statement. And if you're coming around Central for um, the first time, you're kind of new around here, that, that's really important to understand about who we are, what we're about, love Edinburgh. But it's easy for a statement like that to be a bit like apple pie and custard. It's kind of nice. Carl said last week, it's a bit vanilla. What do we really mean by that? What does it mean for us together as this church to love Edinburgh? And so in this series over the next few weeks, it's a bit like a box set, you get a few in one, um, we're hoping to unpack this a little bit. What does it mean? What does it really look like for us to love Edinburgh? And so to answer that question, um, I want to take you to a historical city, not unlike ours, but a few thousand years ago called Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the walls are down. They're ruined. It looks pretty bad on the ground. And we're going to read about the story of this city and its ruined walls in a book called Nehemiah. So that is in uh, the Bible. It's a, you find it probably like about halfway through. It's like half time when England did not pull themselves together. Anyway, I'll move on. Not bitter. 
And the story goes that even in that first half of biblical record, God's people had basically stopped behaving like God's people. They'd forgotten what it meant that this incredible privilege of being called God's children had things to say about the way that they lived. Unkindness, competition, injustice, economic uncertainty, pain, all commonplace. Do they sound familiar to you? A little bit. And God being God, he's a gentleman, kept his word. That's what we call a covenant agreement. He kept his word. He did the things that he said he would do. And he didn't let them down. And so he began to call back his children from where they had scattered, much like refugees and economic migrants today, scattered from one city all across the diaspora. And he calls them back under the leadership of this king called Ezra. Come back, come back to worship me. I will rebuild you again, says God. And that's the point at which we've come to this story today. And they've rebuilt the temple. They've made it strong. Worship was happening. The church was essentially functioning. But the city lay in ruins. And if you were here last week, you will have heard Carl ask the question, does that bother you? Does that bother you? The city lies in ruins. The church is functioning, but the city lies in ruins. There are lots of good things to celebrate, aren't there, about the city of Edinburgh. There are lots of good people doing lots of good things. But does it bother you, the loneliness, the injustice, the unkindness, the poverty, the economic uncertainty of this city? Does that catch your heart? Does that bother you? And it's in the ruins of Jerusalem, a city not unlike ours, that we find the story of a man called Nehemiah, a man not unlike us. And the pain and the shame of the ruins caught Nehemiah's heart. And he knew he had to step into the gap. So here's my question for us today to pause and to consider together. What do you do if you're bothered? You're bothered. But what do you actually do if you're bothered? And what can the story of Nehemiah show us about a way forward as we love Edinburgh together? Does that sound all right? That's where we're kind of going, okay? So if you've got a Bible, then turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. So it's about midpoint. You can always see the contents page. I find that incredibly helpful. Um, Or if you don't, then it'll come up on the screen behind me. So we're reading from Nehemiah 2. Verses 11 to 18. So, let's read together. I went to Jerusalem, this is Nehemiah speaking, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me, except the one I was riding on. So, there were no horses, basically. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. 
The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Let's just pray as we come around what we believe is God's word this morning. So Father, we thank you um, for this book. We thank you that it has wisdom and instruction and counsel for us today. And we pray that you would come and you would speak to us together. It's one church, one family this morning. That you would help us see how we can love this city really well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, I've been thinking a little bit about change recently. Uh, feels like, don't know about you, but feels like there's a lot of change around here. Change is here to stay, I've heard. Um, and maybe it's just a life stage for me, but change can be a bit unsettling, can't it? What's going on? What's happening? And one of the seasons in my life, and some of you will relate to this, I've known the most amount of change is pregnancy. When you think about it, all the changes that happen in a woman's body during pregnancy, your belly swells, your back aches, you have things called cankles, which are ankles that have basically stopped performing. Anyone know about cankles? Yeah, a few grins. And uh, yes, you eat weird stuff, your stomach churns, but by some miracle of bodily function, when the baby arrives and is there in your arms, you forget everything that went before. And I think that's a great illustration of change. Um, change is a lot like that. Change is a precursor to anything positive happening, isn't it? If you want rebuilding and restoration, if you want restitution and rebirth, then there has to be some element of disruption. Change has to happen. The only place that you probably won't get change around here is if you board a Lothian bus service. So that was a joke, but don't. Brought my own encouragement this morning, so don't worry about it. So change. What do you do if you're bothered? I think you have to embrace some element of change have to make yourself available to God again and again and again. That is the kind of sequence of the Christian life, making yourself available again and again, more and more to God. And we totally see this with Nehemiah. Come with me to the passage. Nehemiah changes so many things to get to this point, to respond to the botheredness of his heart. He changes his role Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. We don't really have those people around anymore, but I wish that we did. It would be quite nice if someone just brought me a glass of wine now and then. But um, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. So he was kind of in charge of the sellers of wine for the king. And uh, the change, literally, he goes from cupbearer to chief operational director for the Jerusalem rebuilding project. I'm not entirely sure what the HR department made of his transferable skills, 
But there you go. He went from, yes, Mr. King, this is an excellent Merlot with deep ruby notes of complexity, to, Dave, you have not put enough water in that cement mix. So there's a lot of change going on from those two things. He changes his role. He changes his location. He's gone in this passage from Susa, a place of relative abundance, prosperity. Everything is great here. I'm walking around. I'm the cupbearer to the king, don't you know? And he goes to Jerusalem, a city lying in ruins. Who knows if they even had running water? I mean, that's the kind of inference there. He changes his relational status. He leaves friends and family in a city where he's grown up and he's known and respected. And he moves to Jerusalem, a city that he knows theologically is home for him and his people, but experientially is a place full of strangers. I know no one. Role, location, relational status. And I would wonder if Nehemiah is anything like me or anything like you, that he also has to therefore change his attitude because those three things must have provoked some stuff in him that he had to work through. Maybe that's just me. His attitude. Change isn't easy for most of us, myself definitely included. So if you're bothered, could it be that God is inviting you into a season of change to make yourself available to God again. And the next thing Nehemiah does is he waits. He's made himself available to God, but now he's intent on not getting ahead of God. And for three days, he waits. Three days. He sits in the city and he inhabits the empty, broken space of Jerusalem and he tells nobody. And for some of you, that will break your little extroverted hearts. You talk to nobody? Are you kidding me? But he sits there and he waits. And then verse 12, he sets out at night under cover of darkness and he looks at the city. He doesn't roll up in Jerusalem, come on everybody, gather round, gather round, I'm about to launch my new website, I've got promotional videos to get you all on board. He goes out under cover of darkness with a very few people and he looks, he listens. Why wait? Well, I kind of wonder that in that space of waiting... I just wonder that God was actually rebuilding Nehemiah so that he could then rebuild with others. That there was things that God wanted to give him, the blueprint, the perseverance, the character, the attitude, the humility, the tenacity, the heart that would see him through what was a huge project, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So I wonder what it would look like for us not to get ahead of God. Because we're not very good at silence or waiting. Generally, our culture is in a rush. There's this beautiful poem I love, and it starts, Above all trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. And we are, aren't we? We want it now. But sometimes God says, wait. 
trust in the slow work of God. A friend of mine, Naomi, she's really wise. Um, she said this thing to me the other week. Um, and it's one of the most profound things I've ever heard. She said to me, Hannah, God is not in a rush. So why are you? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, you got me there. And you know, it was great to celebrate with the folk who are, who are launching new communities today. Five new communities launching today. That's absolutely fantastic. Out there in the city, loving Edinburgh. But if, if you're starting out as a community, then you also need to hear there is no rush. It's like the green cross code of community. Stop, look, listen. Be in your community. Talk to people. Wait. Don't get ahead of God. Let him till the soil and clear the space for you to begin. So what do you do if you're bothered? You change. You wait. And then I think what we see from Nehemiah is that we're called to speak. There comes a point at which we actually have to verbalize and share the vision that God has given us for the city. The things that we want to see change. And Nehemiah got to this point. I have to say it's not the best opening line of a motivational speech I've ever heard, but it seems like Nehemiah hadn't quite pulled his communications team together yet. So turn with me, verse 17. You see the trouble we are in. Uh, I probably could have done better than that, but don't worry. Nehemiah. <laughs> so think about this for a minute. For a hundred years, the walls of the city had been crumbled. A hundred years. That's like nobody would have even remembered what they were like before they were broken down. That's like third, fourth generation of children growing up, very familiar with the desolation of their city. I read a news report the other day that said there are actually refugee camps where fourth, fifth generations are now growing up within the camp. Isn't that horrendous? That's like this. And so think about, in that context, the absolute guts that it must have taken for Nehemiah to stand up before those people and say, do you know what? I think God wants to change that. Think about the sheer audacity of his vision. He's speaking to people who probably thought, God's, God's not really bothered about us, about our city, about the disgrace that we're in because the walls are down and we could be attacked at any moment and we're not very safe. Think about the bravery that it must have taken Nehemiah to stand up and to own the vision and to speak out the things that God had given him. What an incredible man. And he could do that because he'd made himself available to God and he'd not gone ahead of God. He'd done all that he could so that when he spoke, he could share the essence of God's heart for his people. A big dream. And I, it got me wondering what kind of dreams maybe similarly in the city that seem audacious, unbelievable. Try these ones on for size. Eradicate homelessness in my lifetime. That every refugee in the city would have a befriending family and an opportunity to hear about and respond to Jesus. Big vision. Every international student in the city with a family to care for them during their time away from home. That people with disabilities, visible and invisible, should be genuinely welcomed and included in the local church. 
that nobody in this city should be living in debt and grappling with all the crippling problems for them and their families associated with debt. That every offender on release from prison is able to move beyond the barriers of social inclusion and employment into freedom and independence. And a reversing of the social trend where churches are shutting down and instead see Jesus' community springing up all across this city. I don't know about you, but they feel like audacious visions, don't they? Big visions, kind of bit beyond us visions. <laughs> if our visions are not beyond us, they are dependent on us and limited by us. Carl actually said that. Carl is an audacious streamer. I have never met anybody quite like Carl in that regard. Carl's the senior pastor here. Audacious streamer. But God loves an audacious streamer. That's what this book tells us. He loves an audacious streamer. And he is faithful and kind to see us through. That's what happens with Nehemiah. Look in verse 18. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Nehemiah saw, he perceived God's hand with him. And he saw this audacious vision for the rebuilding of the walls beginning to actually work out. So he spoke it out. And when we speak out our audacious visions, we're not just speaking of the things that we want to see. We're actually speaking about who God is and what he's like. So all those visions that I just spoke out, they're all actually visions of people in this church, if you didn't know that. People who are already putting action to those words. So when Claire hosts Square Hole Keeley, she's actually speaking about, this is who God is, and this is what he is like. When Trisha and Kenny in the sanctuary community befriend refugee families moving to the city, they're saying, this is what God is like. This is how faithful and how kind he is. When Duncan and Mary and Julie and all the folk involved in the CAP Center here and the community care for those crippled by problems of debt, they're saying, this is who God is. This is what he's like. This is what it means for a city to go from ruins to restoration. And the amazing thing is that we get to do this together. Everybody gets to play. Every one of you, every single one of you in here this morning, we all get to do this together. And we all do it differently because God made us all differently and gave us a different part. You get to be who you are in this rebuilding. But go look at chapter three. Basically, I'm not going to read it all to you because it would take a long time. And also, it would be embarrassing how badly I would pr pronounce everybody's names in that passage. Um, but someone said to me when I was preparing this week, this is the most boring chapter of scripture. I said, thank you so much. That is so helpful. <laughs> thank you. Um, but I think there's something wonderfully precious about chapter three. It's like the ultimate building firm roll call. It's a roll call of honor. These people, bear with me for a minute, this Eliashib, this Meshalem, this Zadok, they built the sheep gate and the fish gate, this Uzziel, the goldsmith, who repaired too as far as the broad wall, and next to him, literally, shoulder to shoulder is the translation, together, in it together, 
was Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, which incidentally, interesting qualifications for working with bricks and mortar, but we'll press on. Verse 13, the valley gate repaired by Hanan and residents of Zenoah, Benjamin and Hashub, Zariah and Binu, Palal, son of Uzziah, Pediah, son of Parosh. Honestly, sometimes I wonder why there are so many lists of unknown people in the Bible. And Faith Brennan said to me, it's just because God really loves people. She's totally, totally right. He just loves people. He's so proud of people who take him at his word and move out on it. And I wonder what our roll call will sound like down the centuries. That Ferry built, she did. That Jules built, I think she'll be in the roll call. That Penny and Stuart Brown built and cooked, maybe together, maybe separately, we don't quite know. Libby, Rachel, Joe and Dave, Stuart, everybody's name. God keeps everybody's name. Everybody matters to God. The roll call of honor. I think you'll be in it. If you're bothered and if you're going to do something about the fact that you're bothered, God's got a roll call for you. So who builds? going to bring this plane into land just now but three sets of people who I think build and they all begin with P just so that you will remember basically but here we go the permission givers they build chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 we didn't read that passage but you can go back and have a look at it they're the people who actually get Nehemiah 2 verse 11 so without them wouldn't have happened This is the account of all the people who made it possible for Nehemiah to step into the new. People who can actually resource you to get from A to B, either with finances or with prayer or with encouragement or with permission, with influence. Maybe you're a permission giver. Do you have the capacity to move somebody from A to B with their vision? Could you release them? The vision won't happen without you. And then you've got the pioneers. Verse 12, Nehemiah said, I set out during the night with a few others. Really small band of people, small, who went with Nehemiah in those very early stages of waiting. People who made themselves available to God and didn't get ahead of God. Are you a pioneer? Can you see, can you perceive the new ahead of it materially happening? Can you speak encouragement into places of chaos, places of ruin? It won't happen without you. And then thirdly, parents. And there's a sense today, and I'd love you to hear this, we're actually all this, whether we're physically parents or not, spiritual leaders. They're the people in in chapter three who will get named household leaders basically. Households back then are not what they are now. So we say household and you might think 2.4 children in a nice house with a pot of daffodils by the front door. That's a household. Well, back back then, households were far more kind of slightly messy, kind of loose around the edges, (laughs) a huge variety and jumble of people related by marriage and blood and friendship and business and network And they're represented in this passage by their household leader. What I've called a parent, basically, but that's just so it, you know, begins with P. Okay. 
And Nehemiah, what he does is he mobilizes people to build by household. And so the household leaders here are taking responsibility actually for the patch of wall outside their own front door. They're saying, yeah, this is mine. I've got this. I'm going to rebuild this section of the wall. And some of them did more than that. That's where you get all the like up to the Moorgate and all these other random references of things I don't understand in Jerusalem. But you built the section of wall outside your own house. So who's in your house? Who's in your house? And what are you building? What are you building together? What responsibility are you taking for your piece of wall? Your street, your neighborhood, your campus, your college, your school, your workplace, your extended family, your social network, your Pilates club, your geographical community. What are you building and who's in and around your house? And, and this is why, as a church, we are so behind communities, because what they do is they are out in the city rebuilding the broken pieces of our wall, introducing people to Jesus, but doing so much more than that too, loving people, loving the city, households of people, whether geographical or scattered, Gatherings of friends or people just with a similar interest or passion, looking to follow Jesus together, to be family together, to love Edinburgh together. That's how God does this stuff. It's together, together. We don't build on our own. We build together. So are you bothered? And what are you going to do if you're bothered? I wonder for some of us, um, God would invite you into being available to him again today. Being open to the change that he might want to bring. For others of you, maybe it's God's invitation to wait patiently for him. To sit in the silence, not to step out ahead of God, but to listen before you move. Maybe it's that you've already caught God's heart and it's the season for speaking it out. It's the season for standing up tall and shouting it out loud. Maybe you know you have to do that. And maybe just the recognition that you get to be who you are. You don't have to be somebody else. Permission giver, pioneer, parent. Can I pray for us? And then faith's going to come up. Father, we pray, thank you, that you are already rebuilding and restoring the broken parts of this city that we love. And we pray, God, that you would give us renewed willingness to make ourselves available to you in that process. Renewed joy and enthusiasm for the task ahead. We pray, Lord, that you would show us the right places to stand, the right places to build. 
And I pray, Lord, for my church family, I pray, God, that you would speak encouragement into hearts this morning. I pray, Lord, that there would be new strength from knowing that we stand shoulder to shoulder, that we all get to play and we all get to play together. So, um, God, as we go away to reflect on some of this, we pray, come and speak. And we pray this for the, for the sake of Jesus and for the, uh, for the rebuilding and for the flourishing of this city. Amen.